Welcome to the world according to Boyer, where we bring top investors, best-selling authors, and market newsmakers to show you the smartest ways to uncover value in the stock market. I'm your host, Jonathan Boyer. Today's guest is Howard Lorber, CEO of the Vector Group and Executive Chairman of the Board of Nathan's Famous. Howard, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you. So you're probably best known for being chairman of Douglas Element, you know, a real estate brokerage house with almost $27 billion in sales. But long before that, you helped engineer a takeover of Nathan's famous, the hot dog company. What opportunity did you see at the time? Well, Nathan's, uh, similar to a few other deals I did, had something in common. It had a great brand name in business for many years and not the best management. And I always felt that, you know, companies with great brand names almost always survive, no matter how bad management is at times, or how bad the markets are for whatever they do at times, they're pretty hard to kill. So I saw Nathan's as fitting that category, that with uh, you know a great management team and plans to grow, that there would be a real winner over a period of time. And having said that, it took longer to really get it going than I thought, which happens a lot. But on the other hand, when you look back now, it was the right deal to do because of the name and because of the expansion we were able to do. And uh, then the shareholders did very well, including myself. Was the plan always really to become get into the licensing business or did you expect to open more stores? Because it's, it's a very interesting evolution. Yeah, well, look, we started off when we took it private and started doing some franchising. Then we took it public again, and we were planned with to use some of that money to open new stores. And really what happened is we opened a couple of new stores, and they really weren't doing well. And we weren't going to just keep opening stores and, you know, go through all the money when we saw that it wasn't working. And, you know, one of the issues, you know, in thinking about the company and thinking about hot dogs in general, I think most people view hot dogs as a snack, as a snack food, not as a meal, okay? So how could you make money in a restaurant, especially a large restaurant, when people view it as a snack food? I mean, we tried different things. We tried by using other brands in conjunction with Nathan's and the bigger stores and so forth. But it's still, with the rent you had to pay and the help you needed, it still didn't really work too well. So we started looking more into the licensing business. And we were stuck at the time with a license that for supermarket sales, which was not a great license deal for us. At the time we did it, I think it was when we were first taking it private and we didn't have much leverage on what we could negotiate for. But years later, we were in a much better position. And when the first license agreement expired, we were able to make a deal that was multiples better than the first deal we had. In 93, 94, you joined Vector. And since the 90s, the stock has gone up after dividends, I believe, you know, over 10,000%, which has basically outperformed almost every other publicly traded company, including Berkshire. Can you just discuss the evolution of that company? Well, thank you for the compliment. Anytime anyone mentions it in the same vein as Berkshire, I'm happy and proud. Look, we believe when you look at the tobacco business, you know, there was lots of litigation risk, lots of things going on in those days. And uh, we were well aware of that. And we were able to do a couple of things to limit those risks and also to benefit from a settlement with plaintiffs, which had, at a certain point in time were the states suing the tobacco companies for not disclosing the risk of nicotine being addictive. So the days of the lawsuits of cigarette smoking causing cancer, 
you know, was sort of waning because the warnings were on the cigarettes for so many years already by that time. So some smart lawyers came up with the theory of suing under the theory that it was never warned that nicotine is addictive. And maybe if people knew it was addictive, they wouldn't start. So any event, we found a way to settle and get a special deal. And when the industry settled, we had a deal which allowed us to go from a company, tobacco company, making very little, if anything, to making a substantial amount of money on an ongoing basis. And our belief was still it was an industry with problems and with really no big growth because tobacco has gone through a constant, slow decline over the years. So we always felt that the best thing to do was to pay out whatever we could in dividends to the shareholders. And that was, you know, a benefit. And that's why the numbers look so good in returns. So for, I think, almost 20 years, we paid a dividend and we paid a stock dividend also for maybe most of those same years. And actually, that was the plan. You can't argue with success, but, you know, dividends are obviously, you know, not very tax efficient. Why dividends over buybacks? We thought about buybacks, but honestly, we really did believe that the dividends were really what the shareholders wanted. So we didn't really concentrate on the completely on the tax efficiency. And I think that the dividends ultimately did good for the shareholders, did very well for the shareholders. I'm not so sure the stock buybacks would have been the same because at a certain point you start buying back stock and then the stock goes way up and you have to stop buying back stock. The dividends, you can just keep paying. If you have the money, you just keep paying. So we felt that dividends were a better strategy. As I said, uh, you can't argue with success. I mean, in terms of the tobacco business, do you see tobacco companies the way beverage companies are starting to enter the cannabis industry? Do you see tobacco doing the same thing or is it a completely different business? There are some similarities, so you can't say it's completely different. But I will say from our point of view, the big difference is the fact that you know cigarettes are federally licensed and tobacco is federally controlled. Cannabis isn't. It's state by state. So a lot of times we've had cannabis companies come to us and say, oh, it'd be great if you could distribute our product, you know, and we have a big distribution network and selling our cigarettes. But the problem is you can't. You can't do it. It's state by state. So it really doesn't work for us. And I think the tobacco companies that, you know, are going to make money in cannabis are the ones that invested in other companies, you know, that are completely remote. There's really no tie-in. They're not distributing the product with their cigarettes. So it's just a matter of investment. Yeah, you know, and it's obviously very hard to invest when it's illegal on a federal level. So it's... Uh, exactly. For a public company, especially, yeah, it's not something that we want to be involved in. So the most well-known part of Vector is Douglas Element, which you bought in your early 2000s. You know, what attracted you to this business? Was it brands so, again? Same story. Okay. Great brand name in business since 1911 went through about three sales of the company over a short period of time. Not great on the management side. And, you know, as I always say that if the management is great, how much more can me or my team add to the value? So this was a case where I felt we could add a lot, much as the same way I felt about Nathan's. And it's worked out right now, tougher time in the real estate business. Real estate is cyclical. You know, a lot of, you know, real estate companies in general have over long periods of time have done well, but have gone through the ups and downs. 
and it's a cyclical business. And, you know, look, let's face it. The companies that have done the best stock-wise are companies that have consistent earnings growth, okay? Not cyclical. And so if we look especially at the commercial brokerage companies, boy, they've been up and down and up and down and up and down, you know, wide swings. And now you're seeing that in the residential because we've all grown and now we go into a tougher market, especially in, you know, New York. And it's been tough on the stocks. There's a lot of talk. I mean, the media loves to, to beat a store to death about, you know, disruption in the brokerage business with technology. You know, are there areas or pockets of the real estate market, perhaps in the low end, that there might not be a need for a broker in the future? I'm not talking about billionaires row. The answer is maybe. I think in markets, maybe the middle of the country, the discounters could probably grab some market share much easier than they could do it in major metropolitan areas. I don't see it happening in New York City or the suburbs around New York. I don't see it happening in South Florida. I don't see it happening in California. I don't see it happening in Boston or Aspen. And these are all the places where we are. I think that it's not going to happen in any of those places. But yes, there will be companies that come into the market with completely different models, whether it's technology or whether it's the discounters or where there are companies now who a broker could get 100%. All they have to do is pay a monthly fee for their desk. So there's lots of options that have been around for a while. So I, I wouldn't say the big markets are immune from it, but it's much less likely that it will happen. And also on the technology side, the one thing that I've learned over the years is, you know, you hear something about technology and generally it does happen, but it never happens as fast as anyone thinks. It's always years and years and years later. I had that experience myself once I, in some business deal, I ended up with a small chain of video stores. I think it was six or seven video stores, you know, stores like Blockbuster, but smaller. And one night I'm watching television and there's a business report and it talks about something new that's coming out. And that was called pay-per-view where you could sit home and use your television remote and order movies. And I said, wow, I didn't sleep too well that night. I said, that's going to be the end of the video store business. Who's going to go to a video store? Why would you go if you could sit at home and get the videos? So the next morning, I called up someone I knew at Blockbuster, and I sold the video stores pretty quickly. And guess what? It eventually did happen, but it was almost 20 years later. So technology doesn't change markets that quickly. And you could look at even at Amazon. You know, Amazon, everyone thinks it is great. It's fantastic. When did they start? 1990? Early 90s? You know, it just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, it's usually a slow bleed. And as I said, newspapers love to tell us a story. I mean, that's, you know, that's how they sell papers. Yeah. They want to say, oh, the disruptor. The disruptor's coming into the market, and that's going to be the end of the market. And it may happen someday, but it's not going to happen fast. In the areas that you operate, you know, the competition for good brokers is unbelievably intense. You know, you have people like Frederick Eklund who just have unbelievable production. How do you convince them to stay with you? It just seems like the brokers have a very big hand. You know, generally speaking, brokers that leave for other companies, the ones that are doing great don't leave so quickly because why disrupt what they're doing? The ones that tend to leave are brokers in bad markets that are not doing that well that just want to change or they're being offered something where they get a few dollars and they figure, well, I should go because I'm not really making much money now. You know, so I think 
that's basically what happens. But also, I have a, a relationship with many and most of, probably all of my really high-end good brokers. And But I'll see anyone. I, I have eight appointments, seven, eight appointments a day, and they're all pretty much with brokers. So everyone knows they can pick up their phone and call me. So even though we're a very large company, I still operate it. We try to operate it entrepreneurial. And that means that the people, our executive team, and myself are always available, whether you're a big producer or a small producer, are always available to help guide you. If you need more money for advertising, come to us. If it makes sense, we're going to do it. So we try to treat the people, you know, it's a simple thinking. And what I learned early on in the business is the buyers and sellers of the real estate are not my customers. Those are the customers of my brokers. So who are my customers? My customers are our salespeople, our brokers. Because, and so therefore my job is to help them make more money. If I can help them make more money, we make some money. So I think if you think about the business that way, it's a pretty simple business to operate. I hope you've been enjoying the interview with Howard Lauber. To be sure you never miss another World According to Boyer episode, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Now back to the show. How helpful is shows like Million Dollar Listing, which, you know, prominently feature, you know, a lot of your brokers or some of your brokers, and you've made a few cameos being for the brand? I think there was suspicion about how it would work in the beginning, including myself. I wasn't sure because, you know, we used to say reality TV, there's no real in reality, but there is. So I think that looking back, it's been a great experience for the brokers. A Million Dollar Listing has done unbelievably great. It is one of the top shows. I forget the viewership. It's something like 18, 20 million now. Yeah, I it's mean, one of Bravo's best shows. Yeah, it's, Bravo, it's Bravo's best. And I can only tell you, my son was on for one year, the first year. I was in London with him a few weeks ago on business. There were people coming up to him saying, a couple of people, not a lot, but I think two different people came up and said, I remember you, you are a million dollar listing. This is seven years ago. And so the show has had a big effect on the brokerage business. And the companies that were very much against it now would be thrilled to have someone on the show. I don't think there's any company that honestly would say, oh, we don't want our broker to be on the show. You couldn't pay for publicity like that. I mean, it's exactly, exactly. On those shows, especially in New York and LA, you see sales numbers, 10, 20, $30 million. And then it shows the potential commission. I guess they kind of multiply, you know, put a 6% next to it or 3%. Yeah. And then, you know, how real are those numbers at the real ultra high end? Are those numbers negotiable on a case by case? Yeah, well, commissions are always negotiable, you know, at the end to get a deal done. So typically what happens is you try to list in New York between five and 6%. That's, you know, basically where it's at. And probably the average is about five and a half percent. And then generally there's two brokers. So if you have a negotiation because the seller's not getting the full price he wanted, what I always say is, how do you get the deal done? It's pretty simple when you think about it. The seller's gonna have to take a little less, the buyer's gonna have to pay a little more, and maybe the broker's gonna have to get a little bit less commission. That's how you do business. I mean, you're certainly at the pulse of the New York City real estate market. You know, the press keeps talking about how bad it is. Is it really so bad? No, no, it's bad compared to 
we're a little spoiled, right? We had a bunch of great years after the recession of 08, 09. And I'd say probably 15 was the best. And then it started coming down a little bit. And, you know, I guess it still remains to be seen how much ultimately the salt, the loss of the salt deductions come into play. I'm sure they're going to come into play to some degree. And now also we have the start of the increase in the mansion tax, which goes into effect July 1st. And so uh, that's going to be interesting. The first quarter was pretty close to the same as the first, a little down from the first quarter of last year. But we'll see. I mean, the first quarter is not generally a good quarter in the business. The best quarters are the second and third quarter. I have a feeling the second quarter is going to be pretty good. And I think there'll be probably more deals because I think there are people that are going to rush to get deals done before the increase in the mansion tax takes place. One of the stocks we own, which we think is, you know, substantially undervalued is a a really small company, Trinity Place Holdings. You know, their major asset is a property on 77 Granite Street. It's coming to market shortly. They have about 90 luxury residential condos between one and four bedrooms. And they're talking about getting numbers between 23 and 2,700 per square foot. I might be off by a couple, a couple of dollars, you know, in this market, is that realistic or? Are they a REIT? Are they a REIT? No, they're, it's not a REIT. It's a Sims, the former Sims corpus. Oh, the Sims. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Look, you know, I don't know the product. I would say it doesn't seem to be crazy, the pricing, mm-hmm. maybe closer to 23 to 27. But, you know, you have to know the product. And it's, look, there's two things people look at today. They look at price per square foot, but they also look at total unit price. So the question is, in the design, how efficient are the units? Because what you want to do today is you want to downsize square footage-wise. And that gives you a chance to get a higher price per square foot. So you want to have smaller one-bedroom, smaller two-bedroom, smaller three-bedrooms. And then people start because people shop by price per square foot. But equally, if not more important, is total unit price. There's only so much they want to pay for a one-bedroom, so much they want to pay for a two-bedroom, and so much they want to pay for a three-bedroom. You were talking about being spoiled. I mean, anyone who's invested in New York real estate since the early 90s who held on for any reasonable length of time has had a very good return. That's for sure. Could you ever envision a situation where there's a protracted downturn like we had in the 70s or 80s where they actually are giving property away or is that just never going to happen? I don't think that's going to happen. I think that those days are far gone. You have a much more stable environment. You know, even 08, you know, look, people always call it the real estate crash. It wasn't a real estate crash. It was the financial markets crash, right? You know, so uh, just so happens real estate got affected by it, but it wasn't really a real estate crash. The financial markets crash caused real estate to go down due to lack of liquidity and other reasons. But I don't see that happening. In fact, you can make the case that really real estate is really undervalued now again, because traditionally we looked at real estate and it followed directly with the market for stocks, for equities. And with the big run up the equities have had in the last two years, the real estate has come down in the last two years. New York, for sure. New York City, for sure. So the question would be, is it going to be a catch up? And it very may well be a catch up. And I think maybe the loss of the salt deductions is temporary a little bit. But I think there's still a reasonable chance that the real estate market is going to start outperforming again to catch up with what the stock market has done. Yeah, that's something that's always, you know, I'm a stock guy, but it's one of the things that's always perplexed me. You know, right now you look at the setup, you have ultra low interest rates, the economy is booming. 
and real estate hasn't done well, you know, outside of the, you know, the major cities. Like if you look on Long Island, what you get compared to what you get in Manhattan is unbelievable. You know, what's caused, you know, kind of a lid on the real estate market? Well, if you look at Westchester, Nassau, you know, Fairfield County, the real problem was some overbuilding that's more in Fairfield County, but also the fact that the real estate taxes were very high. And now with the loss of the salt deduction, you, you know, you can't deduct them except for $10,000. But having said that, I think you picked up on an important point. I think the suburbs around the city have again become compelling for people and for families. So you might see people starting to move back out there. You know, it used to be young people get married, they have stay in an apartment in the city, they'd have a kid, by the second kid, they'd move out to Long Island, and that would be that. Then you went through now this recent years, you went through a period where they didn't want to leave the city. And especially, look, certain people, if they're both, if husband and wife are both working, you know, it's hard for both of them to be commuting and leave the kids every day. So that, you know, is difficult. But when they were able to leave and go out to Long Island, you know, you look at what they were able to get. And this is the point you bring up. And therefore, I think it's somewhat compelling. Long Island is somewhat compelling again. And even if you worry, and, and Westchester and, you know, parts of Fairfield County. So even if you're paying, if you buy a house for $2 million, $2.5 million, and you're paying $50,000 in real estate taxes, if you're at a place in Long Island with, or in Westchester with a good school district, as opposed to being in the city and paying two private schools, you know what? It looks very cheap to be on Long Island. Yeah, and now that, you know, if they ever actually connect Penn Station and Grand Central, that actually ever right. happens, that makes Long Island even more valuable. Without question. When I bought my first expensive house in Long Island, I remember the broker was an old timer, and he comped it to New York City condo price. And I remember how looking at it and saying, wow, you know, I think New York City average condo price was like $700. And I think the house I was paying $300 for and the condo was, you know, it was nice. It was an okay building, whatever. But the house was on an acre, 6,000 feet. The condo, you know, you couldn't find a 6,000 foot condo. It would be a lot, lot more money. And I was on the water. And I said, geez, this is great when you compared it to the city. But then again, those are rougher days in the city when the city wasn't doing as well. And now the city's been doing great. So I think that, but I, I do think that there will be a trend which will start raising prices in the suburbs because it's just out of whack. And things that are just out of whack, generally something happens and it becomes more normalized. It really is at the point where it doesn't make sense at this point. One final topic I just wanted to talk about. One of the things that you recently, or I guess about two years ago, you were appointed chairman of the Holocaust Museum by the president. How has that experience changed you? Well, it's been phenomenal. I would say it's definitely life-changing. My interest in it stemmed from my mother's parents, my grandparents, who we lived with in the Bronx until I was about eight years old. My grandparents were Greek Jews that lived in this area of Greece, Thessaloniki, where half the Jews in Greece, there was about 100,000 Jews in Greece, 50,000 of them lived in this area of Thessaloniki. My grandmother and grandfather left early. They left like around 1912 and 1913. But I remember asking my grandmother when I was about, I guess about five or six years old, my grandfather had passed away. And I said, what happened to grandpa? And she told me the story that 
you know, although they were able to get out early when the Nazis went into Greece in Thessaloniki, they took 48,000 of them was, were basically murdered in Auschwitz-Birkenau and that they lost every friend they knew, relatives and, and so forth. They were lucky enough to have already been here in the United States. And I always had that constant thought in my mind of when you think about it, to wipe out, you know, like 90% of a population in a small area because of their religion. It was just, you know, sort of inconceivable. And that was sort of my motivating factor into wanting to become more involved to make sure things like that never happen again. And I couldn't think of a better way than doing it than through the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Is there more of a sense of urgency now that, you know, the last generation of survivors are, you know, getting up in age to make sure the story is told? Yeah, without question there are. But in addition to that, look what's going on. I'd say in the world, but let's look at the country with the shootings and the the murders and the synagogues. I mean, the anti-Semitism is surely on the rise throughout the world. And, you know, as time goes on, people tend to forget. And that is our job is to never let them forget what has happened in the past. And I think that, thank God, there's other organizations, there's other people that, you know, they're trying to do it. There's a position in the government that's called the Special Envoy to Combat Anti-Semitism Throughout the World. It's sort of an ambassador-type position, and someone I know was just appointed to it. But this is the thinking now. You really have to be out there, and you really have to, you know, fight what's going on. And it's a difficult fight, but we have to do everything possible to make sure people remember so it doesn't happen again. Well, Howard, I really want to thank you for your time today. You've been unbelievably generous with it, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure, John. I hope you enjoyed the show. To be sure you never miss another World According to Boyer episode, please follow us on Twitter at Boyer Value. Until next time.